If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. To be successful in Formula One, you must never stop learning. Sam Michael is an engineer, but in his long career at the top of the sport, he came to understand what really makes it tick. I'd say probably the first half of my career in Formula One, I thought it was a technical challenge. In actual fact, Formula One's all about people. When you first start in Formula One, I think everyone goes through imposter syndrome or something where you just think there's no way I could be good enough. I literally thought in F1, everyone, like even the truck drivers, could work in NASA or something like that. They're just like the smartest people in the whole world. Sam started out as one of the people that makes a team work, and he ended up a leader. As Williams technical director and McLaren sporting director, Sam was one of the most influential people in the sport, but he never forgot the lessons he learned in his early years as a race engineer. You're always going to have bad days. The one thing that you've got to do as a race engineer is very quickly get the driver on side and say, just remember, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that are wrong. Let's make sure we're in this together. A lot of drivers do find that difficult to stick to when things go wrong. Hello, I'm Tom Clarkson, and this is F1 Beyond the Grid. This week, Sam Michael has been reflecting on more than two decades of working in Formula One. His journey started with Lotus in 1993, and after they went bankrupt just a year later, he moved to Jordan. Working his way up the ranks, Sam became a race engineer for Ralph Schumacher in 1998, and then achieved Grand Prix wins with Heinz Harold Frentzen the following season. His stock continued to rise, and in 2001, he became Senior Operations Engineer at Williams, where he was promoted to Technical Director soon afterwards. With Schumacher and Juan Pablo Montoya in the cockpit, the team enjoyed multiple victories and podiums in the first half of that decade. After 10 years at Williams, Sam accepted a new challenge as McLaren's Sporting Director. The team had an exciting all-British lineup with world champions Lewis Hamilton and Jensen Button but they had to defer to Red Bull in Sebastian Vettel's era of dominance. Sam then left Formula One in 2014 and returned to Australia to spend more time with his family. Now president of the FIA Safety Commission and in charge of a software development company, Sam reflects on the moments and the people that had the biggest impact on his life in Formula One. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sam, it's great to see you again. It's been nearly a decade that you've been out of Formula One. How is life back in Australia? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thanks. Life in Australia has been good, although I still spend time in Europe as well. But yeah, my life's very much in, in Australia these days, but it's been fantastic. Tell us a little bit about what you're getting up to now. I run a software company uh, called Ox Mountain that focuses on machine learning and software applied to maintenance and reliability. So mainly in heavy industries uh, like mining and rail. Uh, so yeah, I set that up eight years ago when I left Formula One and uh, it's just been a um, fantastic climb in that sort of world. So it was really, I really wanted to sort of take a lot of the lessons I'd had in F1 and apply them to a company and got a great team of people and uh, that's going really well. 
That's really interesting because yeah. I was about to say that sounds a million miles away from Formula One, but you could apply some of the lessons from F1. Yeah, absolutely. So I was really keen to get involved in software because it's the future in many sectors. But I was also keen to, to use the knowledge that I gained in, in a lifetime of Grand Prix racing, uh, both from, from a people point of view, but also uh, technology because of the stuff that F1 does is is normally a few years in front of everybody else, and I was keen to do that. And do you still keep an eye on Formula One? Yeah, I do. So I'll still watch the Grand Prix. Most of them I'll watch on record on Monday morning. Yeah, I'm because, <laughs> no, but it's like sometimes it's two o'clock in the morning in Sydney. But with more flyaways in in uh, Asia and and the Americas, it tends to be better timing. I still have an active interest in motor racing. I'm non-exec position with FIA doing the president of the safety commission which is a two-year term i'm halfway through that at the moment uh, and that's pretty good because you sort of get to keep in touch with first of all the engineering process and it's mainly a governance role governance and strategy it's not exact so there's a full team of engineers and, and technicians in geneva and paris that do all the hard work but it's sort of a good way of giving something back although i was on working groups in throughout my time in formula one you can't truly be objective you've always got a bias because you're you're there for your team um, whereas when you step away from Formula 1, I feel like it's the only period of time where you can actually give something back. And you took over that role from Patrick Head? Absolutely, yeah. And I actually, Patrick and I hadn't spoken to each other for a while, and we had a handover meeting. So he came on his Zoom from Sardinia, I think it is. That he's That's living. where he lives yeah. now, yeah. And uh, we had a had an hour or so just catching up, and I have to say half of it was just spent telling old stories about Williams <laughs> rather than FIA. And then we got onto the, got onto the FIA role, but it was, yeah, it was good to see him. And... If you look at the technical regulations in Formula One now, you left just as the, the hybrid turbos were coming in. But what, what do you make of where the sport's at now? Uh, it's good. I mean, the, the, I have to say the, the proof is in the pudding and the, the overtaking um, and the raceability of the cars is clearly improved. You know, it looks like it's pretty healthy from that point of view. Uh, the cars, yeah, they've changed massively since I, if I go right back to the beginning of when I was in Formula One, but hopefully all for the better. Well, let's talk about your time in Formula One now. You work with some incredible drivers and some iconic teams, Lotus, Jordan, Williams, McLaren. Which of those teams left the biggest impact on you? Oh, that's a really hard one to answer because it's they all had an impact for different reasons and because of the stage you were up, up to in your life, you know, in your maturity, just purely down to your age and your, and your work, what you've achieved in work. I'd say in terms of impact, it was... Of course, the time I spent at Jordan and then Williams was the longest. I think it was all six or seven years at Jordan and 11 years at Williams. Um, but then I, I, even the sort of four years I was at McLaren, I, I learned a hell of a lot there about, especially about people. I don't think I'd, I could name one. They all form the, the makeup of your you know, experience. If well, you know. Look, we'll go through it yeah. team by team yeah. in a minute. But let's talk about drivers then. Who was the fastest driver you worked with in your career? Lewis Hamilton and Heinz Harald Frensen. Everyone's heard of Lewis, not as many people have heard of Frenson, but if you're talking about pure natural driving talent, uh, Lewis and Heinz for sure. And just, just the, the things that you saw them do in tricky circumstances, extract value and lap time out of cars that they had no business doing and compared to their teammates and just everything stacked up. Uh, those were definitely, so Heinz at Jordan and Lewis at McLaren. And when those guys are on a qualifying lap, are they extracting the time in a similar way? I, th I think that their race performances were also everything. There's the, the whole whole package in terms of driving ability. So if you're focused on talent, they're pretty much getting that in qualifying and race. 
Let's talk about Heinz then. As you say, you were with him at Jordan. Did you sense when he joined the team that he was damaged goods after two largely unfulfilling years at Williams? The thing I realised really quickly with Heinz, he came to the factory and did a couple of seat fittings with uh, Andy Stevenson and myself on, on a weekend because he then went on to do the test at Suzuka post whatever that, that year was. I guess it was end of 98 because he drove for us in 99. And really quickly, he was trying really extreme things on setup uh, around Suzuka um, in that test. And first of all, the, the setups were very extreme. So to almost to the point where you, just, you knew it wasn't going to work. But first of all, the thing that you noticed was Heinz could drive these setups for a start. That in itself was impressive. And then you sort of realized that he was creating a, an envelope for himself to understand where the car worked. I think he just wanted to build a mesh, if you like, to say, okay, this is what it does when I do this to it. And when I say setups, I mean, you know, the spring rates, uh, the roll rates, the weight distribution, the error balance, he was changing all those sort of first order things very quickly. So my first impression, because I was his race engineer at that point, straight away, is it was really, it was sort of chaotic. But then afterwards you realized actually he was just sort of putting these points down. Oh, okay, it does this when I go there. Uh, so it was really enjoyable. He would definitely thought outside the box. So he, And he was quite happy to try things that were just crazy out there in terms of setup. So that was my first impression of him. If he had this speed that you're talking about, why didn't he achieve more in his Formula One career? There's a lot of things that make up a driver and their, their package. It's not only their natural driving ability, it's their ability to communicate with people and work in, inside a team, the ability to uh, manage your emotions and understand when it's a good time to be emotional and when it's not. There's also, as I said, the teamwork, you know, working with mechanics and engineers around you and extracting the most from them. And all those things stack up to make a total driver. And although I never worked with him, you'd have to look at someone like Michael, because he was on the opposite side of the fence. He was pretty much ticking all the boxes in that regard. In the early years, it was Michael and Heinz and, and Wendlinger, who were the sort of three main superstars out, out of the Mercedes sports car program. Uh, but obviously one of them went on to become a seven-time world champion. And the fact that Heinz didn't achieve that, there's probably there's lots of other factors that add up to that result, if you like. It's funny that you say that because I had Jochen Mass on the podcast a, mm. a, f a few years back. And of course, he was the mentor, if you like, That's when right. they were at Mercedes. And he said, actually, Heinz was probably quicker than Michael. Mm, I've heard but that Michael times. was the full package, whereas Heinz, yeah. for whatever reason, wasn't. Well, uh, and that, it's interesting. I, so I'm thinking as a race engineer straight away. And one of the things that Heinz was absolutely fantastic at and probably formed 30 to 40% of the success in 99 was his fuel saving ability. And he could save fuel and extend these strategies and stops. And he told me that Jochen Mass taught him that. And that came from sports cars. And he could do this with almost, of course, you lose some lap time, but it was almost minuscule. And the fuel saving was massive. And he'd far outweigh any sort of mapping change that you could do to the en engine. And they had this really sort of unusual technique, but it was, it worked fantastically. I don't know, it just made a huge difference to results in the end. He finished third with you in the 1999 Drivers' Championship. Did he really believe that he could win it that year? I think there was probably various points where the only person who could have believed it was Heinz because he's driving the car. So he knew the competitiveness of the car right from the beginning at testing. And I remember him coming back in the early sessions and, and even then we were, we were good, but we weren't like winning good. But he knew that it was there. So he had more confidence and that brought confidence in us. But 
I think, for where we had been as a team. Remember, the previous year was 98, and we'd won a Grand Prix with, with uh, Damon and Ralph in second. And if you go just before that, we were almost game over. You know, So only a year before, we, were, we couldn't even fit, get any points, and yet here you were potentially fighting for a driver's championship. So it was a dramatic change. It's interesting, actually, because you look at Aston Martin this year and how good they are. I was talking to someone just a week ago saying, if you look through the history of Jordan, Force India, Aston Martin, which is the same fabric of team, they sort of have this history of boom and bust, don't they? You see, okay, Aston Martin now, they've had a couple of bad years. They're going to have a fantastic year next year. No other team quite has those sort of peaks and troughs like they do, but that's gone all the way back to the Jordan days. I don't know why, but it's, it's what I've seen a repeat there. There's one thing that happened in 99. I think you can give me some clarity on. So he got pole at the Nürburgring, but the engine shuts down after his pit stop. What really happened there? There was a piece of software called anti-stall software. And at that time in the regulations, it wasn't defined very tightly. And what we realized is that you could use the anti-stall mechanism to trigger a certain revs. You could basically set the throttle position for whatever the anti-stall was. So you could lower the revs on the start, get much closer to the stall limit and get better traction off the line. So it sounds really good. I'd, I don't think the benefit was really, it definitely wasn't worth it as soon as you lost any points. By the way, uh, Heinz's problem was slightly different to Damon's because Damon's engine shut down off the start. So he stopped at turn one and that's where we were using it. We were using it on the Grand Prix start. We never used it in the pit lane. So the target was only ever used to use it on the Grand Prix start. And then unfortunately what happened is during Heinz's pit stop, the system triggered uh, and we never looked at it during pit stops the first time it had ever happened so what because you don't need to do a fast start that's that risky out of a pit stop and then it stopped at the end of the pit lane and then i think it was probably about 10 seconds later we realized what had happened it had triggered the system it was only meant for the grand prix start anyway the fia changed the rules after that and tightened everything up after a few good conversations with um charlie and joe we uh yeah, then they changed rules following you. It's kind of what might have been, isn't it? Because he'd won two races, yeah. you know, in France and Italy that year with that win as well, or potential win. That's true. It could it's, have changed things, couldn't it? Yeah, possibly. I think, I mean, the season's made up of lots of different things. And probably the gutting thing about that is I just, even for the, because I remember when it happened, everyone said, oh, you're, you know, exploiting a system. And that's what everyone does in Formula 1, isn't it? But the worst thing is that I don't think it was actually worth that much. So but I think it tends to be like that, doesn't it? Sam, let's bring it back to you now. Where did your passion for motor racing and Formula One in particular come from? As a young boy, I, I grew up on farms. So I was always interested in machinery and working on motorbikes and farm equipment. And so I liked the mechanical side of things very early. And although I raced motorcycles and I, I enjoyed this competitive part of racing. Hang on, yep. you raced motorcycles? Yeah, I used to race off-road motorcycles. So I raced motocross and supercross when I was a young kid. So when I was in, you know, teenager. And I was pretty much obsessed with motor, motorcycles till I was probably 17 years old. And then I got a job in a car workshop as a mechanic on weekends. It was, I was in last two years of high school. And uh, the person that was working there just happened to be the Australian rally champion, a guy called Neil Bates. Anyway, one afternoon on Saturday, I wasn't, although I was working in the workshop, I wasn't that interested in cars. And then he said, oh, come for a ride in a, in a rally car. And I was blown away. I couldn't believe that you could drive a car that quickly around corners without just rolling and, and having a crash. Uh, so I was pretty much hooked on cars then. And then somehow it went very quickly from 
liking rally cars to circuit cars. And um, yeah, I then followed Formula One and then there was there was an open wheeler category in Australia and I did that for a couple of years while I was at university. The moment I finished uni, I went straight to Europe to start Formula One. You've completed the circle in my mind because I remember getting off a long haul flight with you and I think we were waiting for baggage or something and having the conversation about what did you do on the plane. And you said, I've just seen one of the best films I've ever watched. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, what was that? And you went, the world's fastest Indian. There you go. Yeah, and that, of course, true. that's all about bikes. And now it all makes sense. I didn't realize that bikes was the first passion. Yeah, it was. I was very much into that world. And I could have easily, I think if I didn't go down that, if I hadn't worked in that workshop, I could have easily ended up doing either off-road motorcycle racing or even MotoGP or something and then just not thought about Formula. I don't know. You just That was my path. And that workshop in mm. Formula Holden, is that where you came across Greg Siddle? That was about two years later. So the workshop I was talking about was just a car workshop in Canberra. So I used to work there on the weekends uh, while I was at school. Then I moved to Sydney to do university. And during that period, I met Greg Siddle, or Wee, and he was running an open wheeler team. So that was, that was about three years after that point. Uh, and that's where I came across Mark Larkham, um, and we started working together on in a category called Formula Holden at the time, or Formula Brabham. They were basically old Formula 3000 cars that would come out to people would repurpose for Australian racing. Greg Siddle, bit of a sort of godfather figure for Aussies wanting to get involved in racing, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. He's um, so I've known Greg uh, since that point, uh, and he still he lives about three kilometres away from me, so we catch up regularly. And he's been a mentor of mine in motor racing. Uh, and generally in life since that period. He obviously made his name with Nelson Piquet in the junior categories and Formula One in Europe, um, but has also been involved with lots of other drivers, a lot, lot of Australian drivers, but also Moreno in Formula One. He's a very close friend and been good guidance both in motor racing, but also around people, how people think and work. So he's, uh, he's great from that point of view. And did he encourage you to go to Europe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty much the first thing he said because... I was finishing university and I said to him, do you think I should, I'd already been to the Adelaide Grand Prix with the team the year before because we were one of the under categories. And I said to him, should I do a year in like Australian touring cars or open wheelers? And he was absolutely categorical, no, go to Europe because you want to be in open wheelers in Formula One, you will learn in one year what takes you many years to learn here in open wheelers because just, it's just a much smaller game. And he was 100% right. So uh, that suited what I want to do. So he introduced me to to Peter Collins at Lotus, who then introduced me to Peter Wright, who's the TD, and that's how I ended up at Lotus. And how difficult was it for you to make that step to England? I mean, did you have friends, family over there? Because we had Oscar Piastri uh, on the podcast recently, and he was talking about going to Europe age 14 and leaving your family behind and how difficult it is. Well, okay, what's it like for an engineer? Uh, do you know what? I, it wasn't hard for me to do that at all, because culturally... Britain's close to Australia from a cultural point of view. I mean, you go to Britain and you can go down the shops and they sort of you can buy the sort of same stuff. And Vegemite can, is not the same no, as Marmite. <laughs> not, not Vegemite, but it's a you can you can let you, people talk the same language and that sort of thing. So, and because I was buried and immersed in the work, I don't think that that affected me very much. But I turned up with no money. I mean, I left Australia with five hundred dollars. It cost me three hundred dollars to get there. So I had about one hundred and fifty dollars by the time I got to Norwich, and I got off at the train station and peter wright was on the train station there. waiting for you to pick no you up. no oh. we just ran into each other by accident by the way i so i'd met him a month before or two weeks before the grand prix in adelaide and he showed me around the garage and he said oh if you come to england i'll give you a job and two weeks later here i am with my bag just got off the train he happened to be getting off the train to go to work 
and uh, I said, oh, hi, it's Sam from the Grand Prix. And he said, oh, hi, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've come for the job. And he goes, well, I didn't think you'd turn up. He goes, well, now, <laughs> now you've turned up. Can you better, you know, go and um, have a shower and I'll meet you in the factory in a couple of hours. And then you never looked back. And what, what was the jobs at Lotus? The official job was a design stroke data engineer, but you pretty much did everything. It's funny because that first year, I was only in Lotus for a year and then they pulled out of Formula One. But because of that and because of the, the state of the team at that time, I could do anything. So for a young person coming into F1, I worked in aerodynamics, I worked in design, R&D, simulation, went to the racetrack to do data engineering. So I was like, you know, remember I was only 22 years old and I was pretty much doing everything. So I was on this huge curve, just loving every minute of it. And we're talking what, early 94? I arrived in November 93 and then there was the whole following year. So I was with them for a year before they, they exited Formula 1. And when you arrived, what sort of state was the team in? Did, did you realise it was a precarious situation for them? I didn't because, and again, I was on this huge learning curve. Because remember, when I left Australia, everyone told me how hard Formula One was. And Formula One is damn hard. But when you first start in Formula One, I think everyone goes through, um, let's, let's call it imposter syndrome or something, where you just think, there's no way I could be good enough. I, I literally thought in F1, everyone, like even the truck drivers, could work in NASA or something like that. They're just like the smartest people in the whole world. So when I would go in and talk to engineers or designers about things, I was so, I wasn't intimidated to ask questions. I probably asked too many questions. I was like an annoying little kid because I was like a sponge in those early days. But I was just in awe of everything there. So that was, it, for me, it was fantastic. So although the team was struggling, it didn't matter. I, I got, I think I got paid 12,000 pounds a year or something. You could have paid me nothing. I didn't care. I just knew I had to get on this curve of learning. And by the way, I would have quite happily stayed at Lotus if they kept going because I was still on a curve when I left there and went to Jordan. Um, but it was perfect for me. And then how long were you unemployed between them closing down and going to Jordan? After the last Grand Prix, which was Adelaide, because remember you used to do those Japan, Adelaide, and then the season was finished. And because I was just living in digs, I just, would just check out, have my bag, left it in my car at the car park at the factory, my bag, so I didn't have a house, if you like. And I, used to, I did that a few times in my, in my early days. Came back to Australia. I was here for about two weeks for a holiday. And then I started hearing all these things. Remember, this is pre-internet. So there's no, all you'd get is Autosport magazine or, or Auto Action in Australia. And it was always a couple of weeks behind. Anyway, I started hearing these rumors that Lotus is going to pull out. And I remember I had a ticket back to England through Detroit. I was going to meet a guy called Bill Milliken, a vehicle dynamics guy that Peter had introduced me to. Anyway, so I called the factory the day before I left and spoke to a guy called Jock Clear. Uh, jock used to be the race engineer i said jock how's it going there oh yeah it's fine everything's good um yeah the, and i said but i'm hearing all these rumors is it all looking good he said no no it's all good sweet and that was like on a monday okay so i get on the plane went through us two and a half to three days later i arrive at lotus it's completely empty there's nothing there at all <laughs> so in that period the whole thing was just emptied um, because i pulled out so then actually i rang greg siddle i had met eddie jordan and gary anderson a year before and they were interested in offering me a job as well at Jordan, but I went to Lotus just because that's just how it worked out. Greg immediately called Gary. I went up to Jordan for an interview. So I was unemployed for about two weeks, I think. Actually, I wasn't technically unemployed at all because Lotus even paid me in December. Yeah, and then I started at Jordan like two weeks later. Similar role at Jordan? I went to Jordan as, yeah, as a, it was a data engineer in vehicle dynamics. My first job was to write a lap simulation program. None of those things existed back then. So for Jordan, there was no vehicle dynamics department. So I went in there and helped set it up with the very little knowledge that I had. And how different was the setup, you know, with EJ, with Gary, compared to what you'd experienced at Lotus? 
Oh, it was completely different. Back then, Jordan was known as the fun team. They not only got results, but they, they always packed up before everyone else. They were, whenever you saw the mechanics and engineers, they were always the ones that were, always looked a lot happier than everyone else. So, so it was a, I was quite excited to go there, actually. I met a lot of people there that, that are still friends today. But yeah, it was a little team. So they're still small. I mean, it was about the same size as Lotus and Lotus just extracted. So let's say when I started at Jordan, there's probably 50 people there. But remember back then, even a big team like Williams and McLaren was maybe 110 or 20. They were winning everything. So whereas now, you know, you've got 600 people in a team. And were you traveling? Yeah, for the first uh, three or four races, I didn't. And then my first Grand Prix, I think, was the Spanish Grand Prix, which I think was about the fourth or fifth race. And whose car were you on? No, I think I did the data for both cars. For both cars? I th- oh. Yeah, because it wasn't common to have, you pretty much had the race engineer and next to them you'd have maybe one control or data engineer. Um, I'm just racking my brain to see, think if there's another data engineer. I don't think there was. So we had Rubens and, and Eddie Irvine and I remember working with both of them. So that's my memory of it. So you worked with Rubens yeah. right at the start of his Formula One career at Jordan and then of course right at the end of his Formula yeah, One career true. at Williams. How had he changed in the intervening period? I think his passion and his enthusiasm for doing the job had not changed at all. He was always the same, completely in love with the sport uh, and everything about it. Yeah, I went to Ruben's house when we were in Brazil and he collects helmets from all the other drivers, which I thought was, it's almost like a fan, even though he's you know one of the most popular drivers in Brazil in Formula One. It's sort of, it's sort of endearing in a way. Yeah, I always thought from that point of view, he hadn't really changed. Obviously he'd matured and grown up a bit, but he had a family and kids, but he... Yeah, I think his passion for the sport was was unchanged. And was he properly quick? Because I know that when he was at Ferrari, he felt he was hard done by, and you know, obviously he was Michael's number two. But you know, a lot of people have said to me, "Well, but was he quick enough to be given the opportunity to beat Schumacher?" Maybe yeah. they thought you're not quick enough. What did you? What no, Rubens Rubens was definitely fast enough. You don't do what he did in Formula One and last that period without being quick. And remember, there's there's lots of situations, and we spoke about the difference between. Heinz Harold and Lewis earlier on there's lots of things that make up what your end results are and Rubens achieved a lot you know look how many Grand Prix he won you know great driver you know really good and then another driver you worked with at Jordan Ralph Schumacher he was pretty new that's right I worked with a lot of fast drivers and going to this theme of yeah but which were the ones that really became world champion well not a lot of them but then not a lot of people do become world champion and I guess so you're always going to have in 10 years time there'll be another a group of drivers that are in the same category. Yeah, they were very fast and they should have been world champion, but they weren't. Ralph was like a, how did Patrick describe it? Like a metronome. So if everything was good and the car was quick, Ralph's the person you'd put your money on because he wouldn't mess up. He'd put his car on pole and he'd go and win the race from pole. He had a direct yardstick to Juan Pablo. Before when you asked me who the best drivers were, I explicitly said the most talented naturally. But if you asked me who the best racer was, it was definitely Juan Pablo because if you looked at his ability to cut through traffic and around people, uh, he's the best guy I've worked with from that point of view. He was fantastic. He would actually unlock strategies that you perhaps couldn't do with other drivers. He was he was that good at it. The only other person I'd seen like that and I'd never worked with was Ayrton Senna, where he'd intimidate people from behind, where he just had this really great ability. Do you think JPM, Juan Pablo Montoya, intimidated other drivers? Oh, yeah, big time. Look at his second Grand Prix for Williams in, in Brazil. where On the uh, restart. Yeah, it obviously, it obviously didn't. Schumacher. Exactly, it didn't end well, but it was all, he stated his sort of claim very quickly, which is why 
he and Michael had lots of comings together over the years. And I think if we, there was periods where we were dominant and had strong, and we talk about the William stuff later, but he had the ability to do that and deliver. And then Juan Pablo had other areas that stopped him becoming world champion, but it wasn't because of his natural talent through his racecraft. That racecraft thing is a really important thing because, and I've seen that in drivers as well. Some drivers just have that. And I think it's a part of their brain. And I don't think they could even communicate what it is. They extrapolate grip and scenarios. So you know how you look at drivers, you look at Jensen, Kimi, Fernando, and you look and you think, why do they never get an accident? Like statistically, not that they've never had an accident. I don't mean that, but statistically, they're much lower chance of having an accident. They tend to always be in the right place. And I think it's because their brain works out, okay, here's this scenario of three or four cars around me during a race start, for example, in a kilometer after a rouge or down that straight, they're going to be here. So I'm going there because there's going to be trouble there. And they don't always get it right, but they do nine times out of 10. And there's other drivers that just know that this is an accident waiting to happen. It's that spare capacity. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Having the driving bit doesn't take all of their brain power. They've got the spare capacity to think of other things. And funnily enough, we saw it at Albert Park with Fernando Alonso at the last restart when he was turned around by Carlos Sainz immediately on the radio saying, we need to go back to the the original grid like at Silverstone last year. I mean... Yeah, he wants the stewards to hear that. (laughs) But but, but, but to to have the capacity to think and even name... You know, he should be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, he knew that. He knew the race to talk about too, didn't he? Yeah. I think it's a balance between what you do in your subconscious and what you do in your conscious thought because I think that stuff where you're planning and especially that, what you, the example you gave in Albert Park, that's your conscious because he's, he's, he's reacting and doing that right now. That's why I think half of this stuff, they don't think about it. It just happens and they just unravel and that's where they are. Going back to Ralph and, and Juan Pablo. So Ralph, great talented driver, but that racecraft part of Juan Pablo was the thing that then Juan Pablo was very good at. So then that makes you then look at him as a total driver and think, he had other strengths as well, by the way. He was technically very good. Ralph, that is. Why was Ralph always so good at Imola? Good question, but you're right. He was completely dominant there, wasn't it? And that's one of the races where he, I mentioned he was on pole and won the Grand Prix. It's interesting because it's a, I was looked at an old Grand Prix the other day that I forgot about. And it was, I think it was 94 and Gerhard won Hockenheim and they were not strong at all the whole year like nowhere and then he turns up and from pole every practice session qualifying pole position qualifying I think it was pole or front row and then won the Grand Prix and the next race back to seventh or eighth thing well how does that happen you know sometimes you can have tracks that are really really favored but his teammates stayed where he was so maybe Ralph was a bit like that the curbs on chicanes can can bring out different things in drivers and the way they handle them and maybe tuning their setup around that Right, there's one race I wanted to ask you about specifically. Spa 1998. Damon Hill wins Jordan's first Grand Prix. Ralph finishes second. Both he and his brother Michael seemed very unhappy after the race. Why was that? If you look at the speed of Ralph during the Grand Prix, the race itself, he was a lot faster than Damon for most of the sort of heavy, wet conditions. And he felt as though, well, he definitely caught him and felt as though he could overtake him and win the Grand Prix. So it was as simple as that. Now, Michael got angry because he, he learned that Eddie had given the command to me and then through to Ralph uh, to not overtake Damon. So that's what he was angry about. Um, and, and when you gave that message to Ralph, what did you get back? Well, he didn't answer me for a long time. And most racing drivers won't do that. And Ralph did that to me again about five years later at Williams in another scenario. But at that time... Uh, I just kept repeating the message to him. And then I think eventually after five times or something, he, he acknowledged it and then stayed where he was. So 
it's an interesting point on emotions because the, the race engineer on the other, on Damon's car was a guy called Dino Tozo, who turned out to be a fantastic aerodynamicist for uh, Renault and Fernando's champ, early championships before he passed away of cancer. And we were really good friends, and the team was really you know bonded well. And I remember there was during the Grand Prix when I had to give that message as a race engineer, I didn't like giving it either. And so there was a period for about an hour during the Grand Prix where where I was angry. It's your car, you've race engineered, you want that driver to win. Interestingly, there's two things. I think it was probably the reaction of Michael that then I completely changed. So with before I even spoke to one of the people, I saw Michael react and, I, and my first reaction was, this has got nothing to do with you. This has literally got nothing to do with you. This is Eddie Jordan's team. And the decision was 100% the right one because it's about this team had never won a Grand Prix before. So imagine if Ralph and Damon took each other off. So it was 100% the right thing to do. But I also understand Ralph's emotions. He's a racing driver. He wants to beat his teammate. So you can sort of understand everyone's position, but the right decision was made. There's no question about that. How do you see the role of a race engineer? Are you as much driver shrink as you are actual car engineer? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So your ability to sort of understand the driver and work as a team, because you're, you're always going to have bad days. The one thing that you've got to do as a race engineer is very quickly get the driver on side and say, just remember, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that are wrong. Let's make sure we're in this together. A lot of drivers do find that difficult to stick to uh, when things go wrong. It's one of the things that I, f- that I find the most impressive about Michael Schumacher. Can you think of an example where he ever criticized the team, like ever came out and said, my team's not doing a good enough job or I told the team to do this and they didn't do it. I cannot think of one example. And he was the biggest adversary of ours for over 10 years. And he had other systematic potential weaknesses like the way he crashed into the the two Williams and parking up in Monaco, which I think were just sort of flaws in someone that was so good. You can't expect someone to be literally perfect. So he had flaws. But I think on that front, in terms of driving the team, supporting his engineers and mechanics... I think I think it's still the benchmark. I don't think anyone. I haven't seen anyone do it like that. Do you think all the really top top drivers have that ferocious competitiveness that will drive them to do some uncharacteristic things? As we Michael Schumacher crashing into a Williams or yeah, or say, but it's almost you know, like Ed that. Senna did things yeah. wrong and yeah, he did. Yeah, Senna was the same, wasn't he? Would you say the same about Lewis? The sort of park the sort of supporting a team thing and just say let's look at general characteristics of top-line drivers, there's a big part of the psychology. I remember Patrick had told me this about Nigel, and he said in some ways Juan Pablo had a lot of similar traits. Some people need the confidence to say that there's some other reason why they didn't perform. They want to be able to process it such that they're the best, and I get that. Their sort of ego and, and confidence requires them to say something else must have happened for me not to win that race or for me to do this or to do that. And by the way, there's enough variability in Formula 1 that you can always find something because you've got your setup for a start and all the things that happen on the track. Having said that, I don't think I don't think Lewis was like that. So from my experience of working with Lewis and McLaren, because by the way, there's a downside to being like that, is that you you may not properly process your your weaknesses. And I'd have to say Lewis is very good at that. He might have been emotional, not liked it, but no one's gonna go, hey, unreal, I'm I'm bad at something. That's that's human nature. But I don't I don't think I saw the signs of Lewis being to the point where he was resistant to I made a mistake. So we gave those examples of Michael, um, those three examples. Can you think of Lewis doing that? I don't. Lewis has always been a clean driver. I don't think I've ever seen him do something that you'd think, oh, that was dirty. Even even look at the recent stuff with him and Max. He goes out of his way to not do stuff. So he might do things where, I don't know, that pushing off the track and stuff, but that's not a 
what do you call it, putting the car into a position where it's like, you do this and we crash. You don't see Lewis do that, do you? What was your take on Lewis and Max crashing at Cops at Silverstone? That's an interesting one. It's a good point, actually. Maybe that was an example. Obviously, Red Bull felt that, didn't they? Because <laughs> exactly. they, oh they, they did a whole reconstruction of yeah, it. Yeah, they did. Um, they did. I don't know. That, that'd be an interesting one for you to ask Lewis. Because it's very hard to explain that one away, isn't it? Lewis is too honest. When I say not too, he's not, there's no such thing to be too honest, but he's an honest person. So that's why I think that's what, what drives his fantastic sort of race craft. And there's probably a part of his legacy that he wants to make sure that's important to him. So that's why I think the Silverstone one is an interesting challenge. There's a lot of people on the fence, isn't there? There's a lot of people that say, actually, no, that was, he shouldn't have done that. And there's others that don't. So the journey then continues. You leave Jordan and in 2001, you go to Williams. Why? I wanted to grow from a maturity point of view. I wanted to experience another you know, a big team. And although Jordan was doing very well, there was a good opportunity at Williams uh, to work with Patrick and Frank. And I felt as I was good for my own development uh, as an engineer. I left being a race engineer to move into a, a chief engineer position. And I wanted to do that. And there's lots of things about being a race engineer that I missed. There were some of the best sort of years of my career, almost enjoyable years of my career. But also, you need to grow up and take more responsibility. And being a chief engineer makes you do that. So that was probably the main thing. I, I love Jordan and love the the team, and and still, as I said, I'm good friends with the people of that that's become Aston Martin that are still there now. And loved all my time working for Eddie. Eddie, Eddie really treated it like a family. You know, he, he personally knew my wife, Vanessa, and my kids and as they grew up. And so he was, it, was, it was hard leaving him. And, and I think at the beginning, he was actually aggrieved by it for a couple of years. We didn't speak for a year or two and then became good friends again later. But I think he... He took uh, it personally. I think he did. Well, no, I know he did because uh, he got very upset with me. But at the end of the day, he's still a, he's a, he's a boss. So he knows in companies, people come and go. I think he felt as though he'd invested in me and I, I'd gone to Williams, so... And how different was the vibe at Williams compared to Jordan? Oh, completely different. One of the things about Jordan, so we mentioned that year about 99, and we said the year before in 98, we were pretty much almost closed the doors at the start of that year before performance ticked up. Williams was the opposite. So there was so much expectation on performance, and yet they were pretty similar in terms of performance to Jordan at that time. Um, but this was a multiple championship winning team, multiple Grand Prix wins, so it was very different. And when I arrived there, we had Michelin tyres, BMW engines, Ralph and Montoya, and it was all all systems go to win Grand Prix. So your expectation was completely different. The similarities, you know, Frank and Patrick were very much racers and invested every penny they had back into the business. That was great. You know, it was a, yeah, it was a good good experience for me. How good was that BMW engine? They claimed it was the best in Formula One. Two thousand and one, that was, and yeah, it was. That was the that was the original one. I think it was called E forty one or maybe the P80 or P82. I can't remember the numbers now. Uh, but yeah, it was a fantastic engine. Uh, it, it wasn't the most reliable at that time. Uh, there was a lot of DNFs and, and blow-ups, but not just because of the engine. There was other things as well. But power-wise, yeah, it was, it was right up there. And were um, you surprised that they split at the end of 2005? Well, BMW wanted to go and do their own thing. And they'd sort of said that a few times during the years that we'd been with them, that that was always going to be the plan. That and was they, always the plan or it's because they hadn't actually won the championship with Williams. They thought we're going to do it on our own. Look, I think it was a bit of both, actually. Of course, they hadn't won the championship, but obviously they went to Salber and didn't do any better than with Williams. But that's 
by the by. The problem is they've left by then. So that program was run by by Mario, and they they very much wanted to go and do their own thing. But at that time, it was, you know, we had, we had a really good relationship with them, and they were hard. You know, they they really wanted to perform. But what's wrong with that? That's F one. That's what you're there for. And of course, it's Ralph and Montoya who who we've talked about a bit. I always felt there was tension between those two. Oh, definitely. And that yeah, certainly on my side of the fence, you were either a Ralph guy or you were a Montoya yeah. guy. And both of them, if, if if Ralph saw me talking to Juan Pablo, then that was it. Yeah. Or equally, Never if again. I was, if Juan Pablo saw me talking to Ralph, <laughs> that was it. That's exactly how they were. Um, in fact, and because Juan Pablo knew that I was Ralph's race engineer from a, two or three years earlier at Jordan, it took me a long time to build trust with him. I don't think I ever really built trust with Juan Pablo till he'd left, actually. Or maybe the last... The really? Last, yeah, maybe the last year or so, he started to talk with me in tr- with trust. Maybe 2003, it was starting to get good. But, but again, he had that suspicion. And I think that was part of his character to get the best out of himself as well. But uh, no, he, he was a great guy. You then become technical director of the team. Did the pressure of becoming technical director take away some of the enjoyment? No, not, not at that point. We had a couple of tough years in 2007 and 2008. They were really tough because we just weren't doing a good enough job from a car point of view. We'd lost all the money from HP and BMW. That made it pretty tough going. And you were having to change engines, it seemed, at the end of every season. Change engines, change drivers. So, so it was a very, a very sort of up and down, you know, lot, lots of change happening all the time, which, as you know, doesn't breed well. But if things aren't working, I get that you've got to keep changing. You know, that's part of it. It's one of the, it's one of the beauties of Formula One, but it's also one of the tough parts of it as well. I enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed all my time there as technical director, and it was a. Just keep in mind, it was a tough role to fit into. You know, my boss, who who's one of the arguably one of the most successful technical directors of all time, uh, who's a shareholder of the company. There's there's zero chance. Even if you did exactly the same job, then you've just matched him. So you've got that pressure there all the time. But I got on fantastically well with Patrick, uh, and I still do to this day. And all the way through the really hard times, Patrick was really good because he would come in and say, you know, one of the things I like about you, Sam, is you never blamed anyone else for performance. You always took it on the chin. And then worked about and regrouped the team, and it was one of the best compliments I could have from Patrick. I enjoyed it, even even when the tough times were there. It was still something that you had to. Had to How get involved was Patrick? Oh, very much so. I mean, he wasn't technical director anymore. By and I'd say his involvement probably reduced in the sort of last couple of years I was there. But uh, he he was still very much there. You know, if I wanted to talk to Patrick, I could talk to him any time, seven days a week. You know, so he'd always take a call or if I needed to talk to him about something, then he was always available. So Would he ask you why you were doing things? Oh, why yeah. are we doing going down that route? Why? Yep. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, that, that <laughs> didn't stop till the day I left. Even when I was, um, I was, I was on notice because I was going to McLaren, it was, uh, that still never stopped, which is good. You know, that's, that's the way F1 should be. F1 is meant to be tough. It's not meant to be easy. You have tough characters like Patrick and they've been built because of that industry, and and so they should be. That's the legacy of Formula One, not just Williams and Patrick. That's that's why F1 should be. Which was the best car that came out of Williams under your technical directorship? Probably the um, even though the the end result didn't show it, the 2009 car with um, which was the double diffuser, which was an incredibly great thing to do. I'll tell you why because it was only thought of two people in Formula One: an aerodynamicist in the Williams wind tunnel. And we thought of it completely independent of someone else. We didn't have anyone come in and tell us. And it was full of at the same time in the Honda wind tunnel in Japan. I don't know the, or the authors of it on their side. And then someone left Honda and went to Toyota. So there was three double diffusers on the grid in Melbourne, but Toyotas came from Honda. 
Were you aware that it was a loophole? Did you think you were sailing oh, yeah. pretty close to the wind? Yeah, big time. So it was very nerve-wracking as a technical director. You almost couldn't get out of it without losing like 10% of downfalls. So you had to integrate the design. But fortunately for us, Honda had gone, which was Braun, Ross, and the first year of Honda, they'd gone further. And also they had Ross to argue with it. And he's a master tactician and strategist. That helped us massively in terms of winning that case because he was so good at presenting. And Adam Parr made a big difference to that. He worked in collaboration with Ross and the group from Toyota to win that case in, in you know, the FI headquarters in Paris. It was, a great was that a classic example of something that you would have run past Patrick Head? Patrick, we found oh, a yeah. loophole in the regulations. We're going to have to come. We're either all in or all out. No, no, not just Patrick. I'd, I'd had multiple conversations and documents with Charlie as well from FIA. We couldn't fully commit to that without saying, Charlie, this is what we sent. I sent him pictures to say this is what it looks like. So he didn't get to Melbourne and go, oh my God, he didn't tell me it was going to look like that. I remember when we got protested in Melbourne, I went and saw Frank. It must have been the Thursday. I think it was on the Thursday, but maybe it was Saturday. I can't remember. And uh, he's, how's it going? And I said, oh, not very good, Frank. Um, we've been protested. Why? What's happened? And I said, oh, it's over the double diffuser. I think we're going to end up in a court case. Frank just looked at me and said, that's fantastic news, Sam. That is brilliant. And I said, what? Why do you think it's good? And he goes, no one protests shit cars. And that was it. He just realized with him, it was like, if it was good enough to protest, that means the car was good. <laughs> so back to your questions in terms of Williams cars, probably that one. We'd done this thing with the uh, small gearbox as well the following year. And anyway, there was, there, was, there was lots of good wins on those cars. Were you surprised at the performance that Ross had got out of that Braun? No, not, not after we'd seen what you could do with a double diffuser. Because whilst everyone was scrubbing to do double diffusers, we, we then went the next step during that year as well. You know, it was a genuine loophole and it was a, it, I guess it could have gone either way, but um, it worked for us. I remember Adrian Newey being absolutely furious about it. Adrian's a master at that stuff. He's the one that, you know, over a long period of time, he's, his track record means he normally gets those things. You know, and look at the work that they then went on and did that, that because remember they then became the, the next sort of big evolution, which wasn't directly related to that, but sort of was, was the blown diffusers and getting the exhaust gases to work properly. And we really, we really struggled in that area. You mentioned Adam Parr, who was appointed CEO of Williams mm. back in 2006. And he was a, a legal eagle and he helped you win that case, of course, with the double diffuser. But one of the other things Adam did is he floated the Williams Formula One team on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. Mm. Suddenly you as technical director had shareholders to answer to. Did that in any way restrict you? Not at all, to be honest. It was... It was something that um, Adam did with with uh, the board, and although I was a I was a board member, I I, um, I I don't remember having an influence on any sort of pressure. You, you had your own pressure, and the, you know what? Our biggest pressure came from the results. You know, you, you're going weekend after weekend, so no, the float didn't have any impact on that. I mean, I suppose a, the double diffuser is a classic example of what I'm alluding to, yep. which is. Hang on, we've got shareholders here. If we do this and it gets banned, then we're in all sorts of trouble. No. No. It, it just didn't change day-to-day -day stuff. Mm. You're still building still racing races. Cars. Yeah, still races and racing cars. And it did, that, that was not an influence on that. It was an interesting time because it's a, uh, if I look at all the things that I've, that I've learned about people, they come from, I'd say probably the first half of my career in Formula One, uh, probably because of the people that I grew up around, engineers, I thought it was a, the whole thing was a technical challenge. In actual fact, Formula One's all about people. 
And it was probably later in my career that I realized that, probably towards the latter half of Williams and definitely throughout the McLaren. I learned a ton about people. We can talk about that in a minute. But Adam was definitely one of the people that is one of the greatest strategic minds that, that I've ever met, both inside and outside Formula One. And it's because he studied history. So he's got this fantastic depth of history from Sun Tzu, which is 500 BC, through to Napoleonic Wars. And, and, he, and his sort of basic message was, humans have repeated all these mistakes hundreds of times and most of them are on battlefields where lives have been lost but he said all the reasons why people do things in history if you uncover them they're happening right now in the pit lane so when you walk down the pit lane and you get toto comes up to you or christian or someone from another team just think of the context of which you're, you're effectively in a mini war the way people think and the way they act it's the same stuff and it's the same in business too so those lessons i mean foreign ones the ultimate sort of hot pot of it because Everyone's trying to, I wouldn't say, yeah, well, they sort of, everyone's trying to shaft everyone else because if you win politically, you can also win technically. So the double diffuser going to a court case, you could have lost that politically and therefore then lost technically on the track. Because if, if Honda and Williams and Toyota had lost that case, the next Grand Prix, we would have all been a second slower and the whole landscape of the championship would have changed. So Adam's lack of Formula One experience didn't hinder him in any way. Oh, it might have done through other for other mechanisms, but not on that front. I think if anything, when I worked with Adam in Formula One, I was on such a steep learning curve from the stuff, the language he used to speak. When I first met Adam, I didn't even understand half the things he was talking about. Like he'd talk about strategy and process and all these people and think, okay, yeah, let's just go, let's just make the car faster. But yeah, okay, that's it. So yeah, he came with a very different perspective and and one which I really grew to sort of appreciate as time went on. Do you know one of the things that young engineers asked me? what should I study to go and do Formula One? And they'll say, you know, I'm going to study mechanical engineering or aero. And I'd say, okay, you've got to be an engineer if that's what you want to do, if you want to be an aeronautist or a race engineer or a designer. Uh, I said, have you thought about studying history? And they always look at me and go, what? And I said, I didn't study history, but I look at all the things that I've learnt about people and how they work. History is your best lesson there. But I don't mean just study history and don't study engineering. I mean, <laughs> do you need to know how cars work? You're sounding like yeah. the lecturer that you are. You've just yeah, maybe that's what yeah, it is. Yeah. You've been doing too, yeah too much time. Um, if I were to say to you, who have been the people in your Formula One life who have had the biggest influence on you? Would Adam Parr be one of those people? Yeah, I'd say probably uh, definitely Adam. Uh, Greg, you mentioned before, uh, Greg Siddle. Tom, I've been really fortunate that I worked with. Eddie Jordan, Frank Williams, Patrick Head, Ron Dennis, Martin. I really saw a big range of leadership, but across all those people, the one thing they have in common is the passion for winning and the ability to invest in things. And that that drives the rest of your character and the actions that you take. And so all those people had an influence on you know what I thought about things. Who was the best leader? It's pretty hard to go away from Frank. By that, I mean, he wasn't a natural textbook leader. But, you know, he did things like he sold his private jet, which he, if there's one person in the world who probably could justify a jet, it's someone in a wheelchair, which was Frank, who had the money to do it. He sold that jet to pay for a new wind tunnel. So it's pretty hard to go away from him. Frank was very tactical, though, not strategic. What's the difference between being tactical and strategic? Strategic, you're looking at long term. Frank would say that he's strategic as well, but he just, okay, look look at the comparison to Ron. Ron took McLaren, could see Honda could see the investment from the Middle East, built the new McLaren factory, built a road car, built McLaren Electronics. It's not that Frank probably wouldn't see the value in that. He wasn't interested in it. All he cared about was racing cars. Ron cares about racing cars, but he also realized I can do all these other things and it's going to help the racing car company as well. 
So that's the difference. And by the way, a lot of people that work with Ron say Ron's not strategic and he's purely tactical. I think it's because in Formula One, everyone has to be tactical because there's, there's literally stuff coming over the hill at you like every second. So if you don't have a tactical ability, you don't survive to become strategic. Um, but strategic is actually playing that long game and looking. Ross is, look at Ross, he's a strategist. Perfect example. But again, look at him in a Grand Prix. He's a tactician. You know, he's he, he's thinking, but, well, you don't even do that anymore because of the way safety cars are and the way mission controls are, but they used to be a big part of racing. And he's very good at it. So Nico Rosberg comes to the team in 2006, son of world champion Keke, obviously. He goes on to become world champion himself. Did you see a future world champion in Nico Rosberg when he started? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And first of all, he was talented, really good driver. But if I then look at him against Lewis, Lewis was faster by natural talent. I never worked with them together in the same team, but the ultimate results is they raced against each other and uh, Lewis on statistically was faster more times. But the huge advantage that Nico had over any driver I've met is he, he was technically very smart. So he, he was really good at, at understanding the car and understanding how the engineering worked. And he used that to his advantage to win the championship in 2016. And I don't just mean technical. So he, here I come to the, the third pillar of what defines a great driver. Nico Rosberg, I'd say also Jensen Button, the smartest drivers that I've worked with. Like technically smart, but also ability to sort of, I just saw them do things to their teammates and and get advantage out of situations that they shouldn't have got. Um, get the team on side. Yeah. Focusing not, on you, not the other person. Not just the team, but the whole system of Formula One. So the team, the mechanics, the engineers, the stewards, the the whole thing around them. Both of those drivers are very good at that. It's probably why they're good on, on TV today. And then I don't know what Jensen does outside of Formula One now, but Nico, you know, invests in tech companies. And and when he started doing all that stuff a few years ago, uh, in fact, Adam told me, because Adam caught up with him, I thought that's exactly what I thought Nico would do. So he's doing exactly what I thought he would do from a technical point of view. Were you surprised when he quit immediately after winning the title? Yeah, I didn't predict it, that's for sure. Then, then when I reflect the way he spoke at the press conference straight after the last Grand Prix, then no. Because I thought, okay, he's, he feels as though he's accomplished that and he wants to go and do other things. But did you feel even in the Williams days that this was all about winning a world championship and whenever that happened, he would then go and do something else? No, he, I think it was too young to predict that at that time because he's, and also Nico's got that same thing that Lewis has got where his legacy is really important and you, would, you could never get Nico to do something that was underhand. Like you couldn't plan something underhand if you wanted to. And not that it's saying that we used to do that, but he was clean and that was a big part of his ethos. So that, and he was just a – he did things properly. And in his mind, I think he was prepared to, to not be a world champion if it meant doing things properly. He sort of laid that case out very early. It, it was interesting actually because it was also uh, – he was one of the young drivers I probably got involved with the most at, at Williams. Uh, saw him grow and it was really – sad to see him leave Williams and I really needed him there then as well but I actually thought from a non-selfish point of view if I was just looking after Nico going to the Mercedes is the right thing for him to do and was it you who started this test that drivers have to do at Williams and is it true that Nico Rosberg has scored highest yeah that's true so Nico is highest uh, but equal top was Nick Heidfeld so Heidfeld was up there with him it's not true that I invented it, but I did develop it and really embed it inside Williams. I, th I don't think I invented it. I think there was a guy called Grant Tuff who might have invented it. It was like a 30-question multiple-choice uh, test, and it ranged from very simple 
questions around the way cars work to very complex ones. And it wasn't designed as a pass-fail test. It was designed as for the engineers in Williams to know what do they have a good grasp on and what do they need to be educated on work on. So it's sort of like that. But the fact that we used to give it to them before they would be confirmed as a race driver, because Frank always, always wanted to know the results. Is this person smart enough? And by the way, you don't necessarily do, need to do well at that test. There's, there's some fantastic drivers at Williams that were very bad at that test. But it sort of just told you what you needed to work on. One more Williams driver, Mark Webber. When he went to Williams, I thought the perfect fit. Alan Jones in a different body and Frank and Patrick were going to love him. And it just, it never quite happened, did it? You know, and I think Frank and Patrick did did love Mark, um, but the performance was the main thing. And, you know, again, that was that point of turmoil where we were losing the main sponsorship. BMW was leaving. Uh, so we had we had one year of BMW with Mark and Nick. And then after that, it, it you know, just sort of, it changed, you know, for the worse. And, you know, Mark wanted to win Grand Prix, which is good. And I remember as well the last race before Juan Pablo won his last race in 2004. And then Mark was stepping into that car thinking it'll be like that. So his expectations were very different, um, which is, you know, that's that's fair enough on, on his side. Everyone sort of wants that fairy tale. It's no different to when Honda came back to McLaren. He wanted, he wanted to revive the, the good old days. Um, but sometimes things just don't work out like that. Well, you mentioned McLaren. You head that way in 2011. I thought you were such a good fit at Williams. I remember being surprised. Well, it was a interesting one because they, Martin called me and, and interviewed me and, and offered me a job straight away. And, and actually uh, what they were trying to do there I sort of appealed to me. And they were trying to restructure a lot of their sort of operational side, which is where I'd come from before being a technical director. I think after Williams, I felt I'd given my best job at being a technical director. I didn't go to McLaren thinking, oh, I'm going to try and be TD there again. Um, and they had a lot of work to do on, on on all fronts. And when I arrived there, I remember the, I took a lot of pride in working with the, the team, Dave Redding especially, uh, but also the mechanics and, and all the people that were there on improving the pit stops. You know, McLaren were doing almost four-second pit stops. Uh, and over a period of about three months, we went from the worst to the best by a big margin. You know, Red Bull was setting the benchmark around three seconds, and we were doing lower than two and a half by then. We were, we were clearing everyone by half a second for a few what races. What makes the difference in a pit stop? Well, it's the people. And going back to some of the themes we talked about before, I probably learned more and solidified a lot of my knowledge about the way the subconscious brain works when you've got 24 people in a pit stop, all trying to do something in under two seconds. And the fact that you have to get them away from their conscious thought because it's very slow, I learned all that through that process. Um, it was extremely rewarding. And in fact, I've applied a lot of those lessons. I've seen them applied in mining and, and rail outside of Formula One years later, especially on safety. There's lots of lessons there that the way the brain works on long shifts and gets tired are really applicable. So it's, it was a, it was a great a great learning for me as well. Um, but yeah, the team was fantastic, and, and you know, it just went from strength to strength over that. I asked you about the difference between Jordan and Williams. What mm. about Williams to McLaren? The two I, most iconic British yeah. teams, but very, very different? Or? They were because you were part of a huge structure at McLaren. There was 2,500 people when I was there. You know, 600 of the race team, but you were in the same factory as all the people with the other companies. So you were, you were part of a big system. You know, they were used to winning as well. So they, were, they had a lot more confidence, but probably because they were winning recently and, and even while I was there. Uh, still winning Grand Prix, so whereas a lot of that was was not in Williams, 
I don't know. The McLaren looks a lot colder on the outside than what it was on the inside, I'd say. Uh, I thought it might be quite a cold team, you know, the way they'd presented themselves. But it wasn't like that at all internally. They, they, they were all normal people. Uh, much more methodical and very much focused on systems and process. Did that come from Ron Dennis? I don't want to diminish what Ron had done. And Ron had a pivotal role in McLaren. But I felt as though a lot of that systems and process also came from Martin because of his aerospace background. And Jonathan Neal. I know that they weren't the technical directors and chief designers, but their, their sort of ethos is pushing that stuff through to the design team all the time was definitely strong at McLaren. They'd been, yeah, Martin had been there for 20 years when I turned up. Um, so, of course, Ron, had, Ron was the racer and had all that, and he was so finicky about detail, um, which was great. Ron had this reputation. He'd walk into a room, and from 50 metres away, he could see the crack in the tile. You know, he's one of those people. Patrick was like that too. But Ron used to come in and he'd see these things. He, How did he see that? And he missed all these other things. I missed all this good, the good stuff. He went straight to things that was really bad. Ron actually told me it was a technique of his. And he said, I, when I walk into a room, I actually purposely go and look. I can't possibly see everything. But I go and find something that's really detailed. And then people go, oh, my God, Ron found that. So that means you can see these other things. And I can't because I don't have time. <laughs> he said, but then that sort of filters through the whole company, get everything right. And he'd focus on the most, like minutiae things you think that doesn't really make any difference but actually it does because it drives all the behaviors everywhere else so when the car was slow for example ron would be angry about the garage being untidy and you'd think as an engineer but oh that, that doesn't make that, that doesn't make the car go faster but in a way it does because then it makes everyone up their game and then he could turn around he used to say look if you get all that stuff right at the track then i can be very robust with everyone in the factory and he's right he said i can go and say no we need the best designers, we need the best wind tunnels because they're doing the job right there. The moment you, you drop the ball at the coalface, if you like, the people who see us day to day, then you diminish my power, if you like, to get stuff done back there. You were only at McLaren for three years. Almost four, but yeah. Were you getting the itch to return home a long time before actually returning to Australia? Or when you joined McLaren, were you thinking, no, I'm going to be doing this job for the next however many years, 10 years, 20 years? I did, yeah, when I joined McLaren, I th- thought I could be there for, for 10 years or something. I, I hadn't thought of a time frame, um, and I thought I might be there for a while. The team changed a lot while I was there. So we changed engine suppliers, all their drivers changed, uh, all, the, all the top personnel changed. And actually, uh, Martin left, and, uh, and Ron took over again, which, by the way, that wasn't a bad thing. Uh, much as I missed Martin going, I enjoyed working with Ron. And funny enough, I'd known Ron for many years from the pit lane. Um, but because I'd come in under Martin, it took me a while to get trust with him again. And when I did get trust with him, we, we got on like a house on fire. It was a really good relationship. So in your previous roles, you'd got to know Ron well enough to, for, for conversations? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, because I knew him through various circumstances where you either end up on a plane with someone or a good example is the Indy Tire Gate with Michelin. Where, you know, I spent 10 hours in a room with Ron and Flavio and all, all the other people that, that were part of Formula One then by necessity so you get to know people through that um and is someone like ron impressive in that tire gate scenario at indianapolis in 2005 yeah he took a pretty dominant role in trying to help fix the problem not actually the sort of race day problem he was trying to get michelin to fix the tire you know can we do anything with the tire over that sort of 48 hours that we had before the race so yeah i knew ron from and michelin as well because remember mclaren and williams were on michelin so we'd cooperated 10 years earlier on that sort of stuff so I went to McLaren thinking I would be there for a long time and then I decided from at the start of 2014 I had young kids and 
let me go back to the beginning. My my wife Vanessa has been the most patient person to allow me to be selfish to work in Formula One. It's as simple as that. And to be successful in Formula One, it's a twenty four seven business. By the way, she put no pressure on me to stop, but I felt as though it was the right time. One of my kids, Tony, she as well as Jack wanted me to stop as well, but she, Tony was about thirteen or fourteen at the time, and she asked me and said, you know, you are you going to keep going or should we? Are you going to stop Formula One at some point? And I just made the decision overnight. That was it. Um, that's why when you leave a company, it's normally quite hard. It's an emotional decision. You have lots of discussions internally. For me, it was very easy because it was a family-related decision. And I felt as though I'd, if I didn't stop then, I was not going to see my kids grow up. And so I came back to Australia and, and I have seen my kids grow up. And I have a fantastic relationship with them and my wife as well, which, which just, you know, you spend all this time on the road. And I remember in the early days of Jordan, Vanessa used to say, you, you sleep with Andy Green more than me because Andy Green and I used to share a room. Have you at any point in the last eight years regretted it? No, not at all. I enjoyed every single moment of Formula One, loved it. It's set me up well for the business that I built after Formula One with other people's help. I've just gone on to to other challenges. As you know, I stay attached doing, I'm the FIA president of the Safety Commission, which is a two-year term that I'm halfway through. I was on the research working groups before that for FIA. That's probably 5% of my time, but it enables me to give something back to the sport when I can be more objective because you can't really do that stuff when you're part of a team because you have too much bias towards one or the other. And if there's one thing you miss about Formula One, what is it? It's the ability that you don't have to tell people that you need to improve. Now, that's one big difference to the rest of the world. It's the sports side that brings that. You don't have to walk into the office on Monday morning at Williams or Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes and say, everyone, we need to make the car better. Everyone knows you have to do that. If you don't know that, you're not in Formula One. Whereas for the majority of people, they don't live their lives like that. And you have to spend a lot of time training people and educating them what the benefits of improvement are. With the exception of sport, so the, the closest thing that F1's got is things like football and rugby and tennis and all that stuff where it's obvious you have to keep getting better. So if I had to miss one thing, it's that. Um, I miss my friendships there as well, but I, the people who... I'm friends with in Formula One. I'm still friends with them. You know, they'll send me a message. We'll send each other messages or have a bit of a laugh. Do you miss the adrenaline of race day or? Yeah, I do. I think it's very hard to replace that unless you went into some other, again, competitive sport, um, which I wouldn't do now. I remember standing on the grid at Melbourne for my first Grand Prix as a race engineer, which was in 98. So I'd been there as a data engineer and test engineer before. I remember Eddie Jordan walking up to me and saying, uh, so good luck with your first race as an engineer. How are you feeling? And, and I said to him, I am fine. And Eddie said, no, you're not. You're shooting yourself. And, um, and, and he was you? right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. Yeah, I think it's a – I have some fantastic memories of all those things. And But again, as I said before, I think F1 is a young person's game. If I look at F1 now for the first few years after – I still see people that I know from Formula 1, but there's a lot of new faces that I don't recognize. And that's good because that's what F1 is. It's about continuous change and improvement and trying to get better. You need energy for that. So what do you make of the longevity of someone like Adrian Newey, who's been around since, what, 1980? Well, it's incredible. And hats off to him. I mean, he's done it. Patrick did it. You know, spent his whole life in Formula One. Frank, Ron, Bernie, all these people, you know, spend their whole life in F1. And it's impressive that they can do it. Even Christian. Christian's the same age as me as well, within about a month or two of birthdays. But he's... He's been almost 20 years or something at Red Bull now. Yeah, I'd look at it and think, well, if they're, they're still winning and, and they enjoy it and they're getting the most out of that every time. Because that adrenaline thing that you said and the ability to 
keep improving, I can see how that's always a fix. That's never going to go away. You're always going to enjoy yourself from that. That's what drives the competitiveness. It takes a special breed to work in Formula One. You have to give everything, you've got to be selfish. I remember once in Oxford, and again, as I said, my Vanessa was very good at letting me just go and do Formula One. I had to go to work on a Sunday, which was very normal. It was a seven-day-a-week job. But for some reason, she got angry with me that day and said, um, oh, this is ridiculous. You were, you and, and I said, well, I've got to go to the wind tunnel and meet Frank. She said, well, the problem with you people in Formula One is you're all just fuck-ups. You just don't know when to stop. And you don't know how to prioritize. I went to work, and that morning I told Frank. He said, oh, Vanessa said this. And um, Frank called Vanessa, which I didn't know about because I'd left the office. And he called her up and said, um, Vanessa, Sam has just told me that you called me a fuck-up. And Vanessa immediately started backpedaling probably thinking oh my god i can't believe that he's told frank that and he said vanessa that is the best compliment you can give me i love being a fuck up because the worst thing you could say to me is that i'm normal and that, and that i do everything like everyone else so he actually took it as a compliment but that's the sort of sense of humor that frank had as well i know you're running a successful business now with nearly 30 people employed but does it all seem quite tame by comparison actually funny enough not because we've got the sort of things that I mean, we're dealing with lots of big companies, so there's a lot of excitement about, you know, when the team cracks a new sort of solution on a piece of code, it might it might seem like to you guys, but I get a lot of enthusiasm out of that. Do you know what really drives me now? I've got quite a young team. The youngest person in my team is like 20 years old, but the median age is probably 27, 28. Uh, and just seeing them sort of develop and progress is really good. We've got a really diverse team, fantastic culture, tons of energy. And what gives me the most pleasure now is just seeing them be successful. So when we land a new contract or we release a new piece of software that's uh, really, you know, they really have disrupted the whole sort of maintenance and reliability sector in, in mining and rail. And, you know, we're running it like a Formula One team. So it's, it's you know, it gives me heaps of energy every day. Love it. Well, Sam, best of luck with everything that's coming up. Thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant to see. Thanks very much, Tom. Much appreciated. He's running his company like a Formula One team. Watch out, everyone else. Wasn't it great to hear from Sam again, partly to reflect on a fascinating 20-odd years in Formula One, during which there was so much change and evolution in the sport, but also to get his thoughts on Formula One now that he's had a bit of distance from it. F1 is meant to be tough, it's not meant to be easy, is one of his memorable quotes in that chat. And it's so true. And it's interesting that he still thinks like that. Sam, thanks for your time. It was great to see you again. Now, please send in your thoughts and stories about Sam Michael in time for next week's show. Would you have liked to have seen Heinz Harold Frentzen win the World Championship with Sam in 1999? Or which Williams of the early 2000s did you like the most? Let me know this and more through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Scott Speed after last week's show. I loved hearing from Scott again, and I found his reflections on his career fascinating. And it seems that many of you did too. Let's start with this from Ephis Jens. I remember Scott from my time playing the 2006 F1 game on my old PlayStation 2. I played as him or Michael Schumacher around Indianapolis all the time, as that was my favourite combo to drive around as a kid. I love that story. I wonder who you follow now, Ephis Jens. Next, let's hear from Ben Waterworth. A fantastic conversation with Scott Speed. Always a massive fan of his and such an amazing insight into his mentality at the time and how he reflects on it now. That name and that personality 
equals one hell of a character and driver. Thanks, Tom, for another superb episode. Well, thanks for the note, Ben. It's great to hear from you. And yes, Scott was so incredibly open during that chat, wasn't he? Finally, let's hear this from Xander Bridge. I saw Scott live at GRC Seattle in 2017. I'm a Subaru fan, so I always wanted Scott to race for them in Rallycross. So I was pumped when he joined the team. He should have won that championship in 19 and could have got 21. I wish he'd had a better time in Formula One. He's a real talent. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Xander. Scott truly is a talent, and I'm so pleased he's found success since leaving Formula One all those years ago. I'm going to leave it there for this week. Even if I haven't had a chance to read out your message, please rest assured that I have read it and I'm really grateful for everything you send in. Well, that's almost it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Before I go, please remember that F1 Nation's preview of the Monaco Grand Prix with Natalie Pinkham and myself is available now. We're joined by Haas team principal Gunter Steiner and McLaren CEO Zach Brown. Plus, we have a new episode of Formula Y asking why street circuits are the ultimate test. And that'll be available from Friday. Just search F1 Nation and Formula Y on your podcast app. See you next week when I'll be back with another great guest from the world of Formula One. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.